Welcome to Forward, a new podcast from the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Humanities is the study of the human experience, languages, cultures, art, history, literature, philosophy, and more. In this podcast, we'll be meeting researchers from our faculty and learning more about the humanities and why they matter today. Here's your host, Allison Innes. What image comes to mind when you hear the word Vikings? A violent warrior society raiding and pillaging? A seafaring people trading and migrating across vast distances of the North Atlantic? Vikings have a hold on the popular imagination, and new directions in Norse studies might just challenge our preconceptions of who and what the Vikings were. Earlier this year, I spoke with Professors Andrew MacDonald and Angus Somerville from our Centre for Medieval and Renaissance Studies about their research into gender roles in Viking society. I have two special guests joining me in the studio today for our foray into the world of Vikings. Dr. Andrew MacDonald is a professor with the Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies and the Department of History. In July 2019, Professor MacDonald launched his book, The Sea Kings, The Late Norse Kingdoms of Man and the Isles, circa 1066 to 1275, which went on to be shortlisted for Scotland's prestigious Saltire Society Literary Awards. Dr. Angus Somerville is a retired professor of English. He taught Old Norse, Anglo-Saxon, and Middle English while at Brock and won two awards for his teaching. Professor Somerville has published on authors Evelyn Waugh, Robert Graves, Martin Seymour Smith, and Michael Polanyi. He has worked for almost 40 years on the historical thesaurus of the Oxford English Dictionary, published by Oxford University Press. Professors MacDonald and Somerville co-authored the book The Vikings and Their Age and have recently released an updated edition of their textbook, A Viking Age Reader, with University of Toronto Press. So welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, You told me an interesting story of how you two came to be working together. Would you like to share that with our audience? Sure. Um, So I came to Brock in 2002. And at that time, I was at a bit of a crossroads with my research. I'd been, I'd been sort of dabbling in the Viking Age and doing a bit of teaching in that area. But my research was moving more into that uh, field. But I realized that if I was going to really move into that field seriously, I needed uh, some background in the language, which I didn't have. So... I made some inquiries on the off chance that there might be someone here who knew Norse and would be prepared to impart some knowledge of that to me. And I was directed to Angus in the English department. Um, I managed to convince him to uh, take me on as a student and teach me some difficult Norse, (laughs) enough to to deal with the the texts that I needed to deal with. And um, we spent a few summers doing that and out of those uh, tutorials in Norse came the idea for the Viking reader. Of course some of the things we chatted about a lot were various texts and translations and editions of things and realized that you know what there really was not a good comprehensive collection of translated texts and one day we were just sitting there and said hey we should do it. And we did it. (laughs) Congratulations. Do you have any thoughts on 
what it is about the Vikings that we keep revisiting them every generation. We keep wanting to, for good or for ill, to come back to this imagery of these hordes of Vikings pulling up their longboat. I've been thinking about that for a long time, and I don't have a I don't have a good answer other than I think my own take on the Vikings is that one of the things that makes them so interesting is the fact that they're so multifaceted. So we think primarily of Viking warriors, Viking raiders, you know, long-haired barbarians terrorizing, you know, villages, monasteries, rape, pillage, plunder, etc. And Certainly, that is a facet of the Vikings and the Viking Age, but there are so many other facets that tend to get overlooked or dominated mm. by that one. So, Vikings as merchants, as traders, as uh, explorers, as settlers, colonists, uh, innovators in, in a lot of ways. So, I think one of the things that leads to these different interpretations is the fact that you can pick a facet and see the Vikings in that light. One of the interesting things that happened around about 20 years ago at the turn of the millennium was that there was a tremendous upsurge of interest in the Vikings and that happened because it coincided with the 1000th anniversary of the short-lived sort of voyages across the North Atlantic and the very brief settlement at the site in Newfoundland, uh, Lancel Meadows. So that was a period when people really were interested in the Vikings as explorers, as seafarers, as, you know, the first uh, people to cross the, the North Atlantic and close the circle, as it were. There was contact with indigenous peoples in those expeditions, and so, again, kind of closing that circle. And so that was a facet of the Vikings 20 years ago that was quite prominent, and I think it's it's not receded, but it's it's faded a little bit uh, in in the interval. So that's a to me that's an example of this facet that we can we can pick out and sort of run with. Um, I don't know whether Angus had more to say on that. Well, we we quoted uh, um, from a recent book on on the Viking diaspora, and Vi the Vikings spread especially across the the Atlantic area and down the Russian river system has traditionally been seen under two headings, raiding and trading, that has, that has uh, dominated the scholarship. But now they're beginning to think about the ways in which the overseas Vikings related to the homes that they left, how conscious they were of a center, and how important the desire to return to that center was among Vikings. So. Diaspora studies, um, that's brand new, and that's a probable direction in the fourth edition of the... <laughs> and it, and this, is, this is one of the things that makes the study of the Vikings both so interesting and so challenging, is the fact that, of course, we, you know, I, I talked a minute ago about we sort of pick a facet of warriors, raiders, traders, etc. But, of course, they're all interrelated, and the facet of being a a warrior, a raider, or a merchant, it's an opposition that doesn't really exist because you can be both at, at more or less the same time. You could go off on an expedition and today we're going to raid this village 
and tomorrow we're going to take the stuff we raided and go and trade with the next community along the coast or the or the river and there are instances recorded in various sagas of that exact thing happening so today we would characterize you know today we're warriors tomorrow we're we're merchants and and the next day we're back to to raiding so it just highlights it's two sides of the same coin and the relationship between raiding and plundering and commerce is very they're very closely connected and very complex. It's it's not a it's not a binary opposition, mm -hmm. as we tend to think. And then the the relationship of these with the oral literature of the period, I think, is is, is also interesting. You know, for example, the archetypal Viking warrior Egil Skallagrimsson, uh, first murder committed at the age of eight, never looked back. He was also one of Iceland's finest lyric poets. Mm -hmm. He was as obsessed by poetry as he was by warfare. And you can look right through the spectrum of, of uh, the characters, that, especially the male characters who come up in the, the sagas. And many of them combine a very vigorous trading or raiding life with a real gift for lyric poetry, which surprised a lot of my students when they found who had composed these things. So it challenges our preconceptions, yeah. for sure. And, and the way that you think about these, these things sort of historically and, and, and otherwise. Vikings are very popular in modern pop culture and shows like Vikings. And I'm interested in the experts' take um, on what those shows do to people's understandings of Vikings and Viking culture. And do they help get people interested or do they present a really skewed perspective that you have to unpick? I think it's, it's both, to be okay. honest. And one of the things that I found very interesting in this sort of journey into the Viking world that I've been on over the last almost 20 years is trying to understand the popularity and the, and the research. The, the, the popularity of the subject goes starts earlier than the show on the History Channel show. Uh, so to answer your question, I, I think that uh, it's a little bit of both. People come to my course on the Vikings and the Viking Age, having watched the show with an interest in the subject, and one of the th questions that they have is, you know, how accurate is this? So you can certainly kind of use the show as a way into the topic uh, and I will confess I have not watched the entire every episode of every season but I've watched quite a bit of it and my take is that um, you can pick it apart and you can say it's completely unhistorical and, and certainly that's commonly said but the more I think about it and the more I watch it, it does do some very interesting things. And it plays with interesting ideas that either exist in the scholarship or that scholars are picking up on increasingly. Women warriors. The, the notion of, uh, exactly, I mean, one of the main characters, of course, is Lagertha, the, the female warrior who's been a mainstay of the show. And over the last three or four years, there's been a tremendous upsurge of interest in that particular topic of whether there were women uh, warriors. And so it's a really interesting question of, you know, does the show tap into scholarship on the subject to develop these themes? Or do 
historians and archaeologists kind of look at the show and think, oh, well, maybe, you know, we need to think about this. That's one example. There's lots of others. It's good television. Um, <laughs> the British Museum did its first ex exhibit on Vikings, I think, a couple of years ago. Yeah. Really big exhibit. They brought material from all over the Norse world, and they used all the popular stereotyped, probably inaccurate images of the Vikings to bring people in. And much of the decor of the exhibition hall um, emphasized something of the grimness of the Vikings. And, but they tried to introduce, I think, uh, a more sensitive, more subtle view of Norse civilization once they'd got people in. Mm. So the show is a tremendous hook. And, you know, when people started doing my old Norse course, I think they got something very different from what they'd expected, more grammar for a start. <laughs> um, but a much more varied range of literature, very fine lyric poetry and so on. Uh, so it was an eye-opener for them. But the, the, the popular image is useful and not totally inaccurate. Um, one would have to be a real Grinch to disapprove of absolutely everything in the, in the show, I think. And the word, the very word itself, Viking, means a seaborne raider. Mm, okay. <laughs> uh, and Angus can elaborate on that, but, but the, the very word itself has connotations yeah. of maritime raiding. So mm. if you're a Viking, in, in the language of the day, that term applies to a very small portion of the population that would go off on these seaborne raids. So it was a, it was a much more focused term when they used it. Yes. Um, probably, well, very few people in the Viking Age would have called themselves Vikings. Most of them stayed ashore for their whole lives. But the expansion of the Western world depended so much on this group of raiders and traders that they've come to dominate North Atlantic studies, I think, for that particular period. So they're not important in terms of numbers, but in terms of effect. I mean, they created a huge network among islands. The sea was a road for them, and the Russian river system was a road. So we have to conceive of a sort of dispersed political, social entity, which is where ideas like the diaspora become relevant. And the meaning of the word changes in the, I think, the early 19th century. It yeah. becomes, uh, there's a complex process of transformation where it ceases to mean a seaborne raider, and it simply means somebody of Scandinavian yeah. origin in this period, or culture, I guess. So we use it to name the age rather than tell you what everyone was doing mm -hmm. yeah. in that particular age. Yeah. So what is the scholarly verdict on women warriors? The archaeological evidence points more and more to the certainty that there were women warriors. One grave, for example, in Sweden contains a skeleton with complete armor and weapons. Now, that was automatically labeled as a man's grave, a warrior's grave, because of the weapons. You identify gender, sex by attributes in the grave. 
latest studies in just a few years ago, in the 90s particularly, and into the 2000s, scientific investigation proved that this was in fact a woman, a very unusual woman, a very unusual warrior, buried right next to the ceremonial entry to the Viking uh, fort area, Mount Temple area. And then in Denmark they found a beautiful little amulet of what some people think is a Valkyrie, but looks actually like a human female warrior. So all of Scandinavian graves, for example, will have to be reassessed. You, you can't automatically take the attribute and say that this is a man. Well, you know, sometimes men are buried with, with what were typically female attributes and things like that, combs and so on. And then contemporary or nearly contemporary historians in, uh, from Byzantium, Constantinople, indicate that there were female warriors among the dead when Constantinople was besieged by Vikings. So I, I tend to think that the case no longer has to be argued in quite the way it was. The door is open, no need to push against it anymore, and the archaeology can go on. Well, thanks for the opportunity. It was really interesting, kind of fascinating. Uh, well, I enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I've, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's great to uh, great, great to, to do this in a slightly different sort of medium, and uh, this is new, so it's interesting. I'm delighted if it's helpful. Yeah, and we'll see where it goes. Thank you for listening to Forward. Find our footnotes, links to more information, and past episodes on our website, brockuca slash humanities. We love to hear from our listeners, so please join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brock Humanities. Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode. Forward is hosted and produced by Allison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Our sound design and editing is by Serena Atella, and theme music is by Kalida Mam. The credits have been read by me, Serena Atella. Special thanks to Brock University's Makerspace and Brock University Marketing and Communications for Studio and Web Support. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University.